The following message was given by Robert Green on Sunday, December 29th at Redemption Hill Church. For more information about the church, visit us online at www.redemptionhill.com. It's good to see you guys as you get settled. Let me... Uh... Let me have a little Christmas pop quiz for you as we get settled. We got a picture I want to show you. Let's put a picture up here on the screen. Who knows what that is? Any kids know what that is? It's a partridge in a pear tree. Do you know where that saying comes from? It comes from the song, The Twelve Days of Christmas. Did you know that today is actually the fifth day of the Christmas season? The Christmas season historically doesn't start the day after Thanksgiving. The Christmas season historically starts on Christmas Day. And for centuries, the church would celebrate the birth of Christ for 12 straight days ending on January 6th. In fact, historically, Christmas trees would not go up in people's homes until Christmas Eve. Because leading up to Christmas Eve was Advent. That was a time of longing and anticipation. So the Christmas season doesn't rightfully truly start until Christmas Day, and we get 12 days to actually celebrate. Now, I've been trying for years to get my family to participate in the 12 days of Christmas. I thought, you know, that the Jewish people get seven great crazy nights. Why don't we get 12 fun days? They have not gone along with that idea. But this year was the first year They gave in a little bit. And so we have been trying to enjoy a celebration of the 12 days of Christmas ever since Christmas morning. And we've been doing it by joining in on a historic tradition of the church. And I know when we sing the 12 days of Christmas, it's a song that makes zero sense when you think about it. It makes no logical sense. But historically, I don't know if you knew this or not, the church used that song as a teaching tool. For generations, the church has taken this song that made no sense to anybody and used it as a way to teach the church, to teach people the truths of the Christian faith. So on the first day of Christmas, when we would sing about a partridge in a pear tree, do you know what they would teach about? Jesus. On day two, when they would teach, when sing about two turtle doves, do you know what they would teach about in the homes? The Old and the New Testaments. So on and so forth, even like today, the fifth day of Christmas, five golden rings, they would teach in the home about the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Old Testament, the history, on, 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 and on. So we've been doing this in our house, and we're going to try to figure out how to do it for the rest of the days, and join in this historic practice of the church, and and being encouraged for 12 great days about the incarnation and the birth of Jesus, but... That's just one of many teaching devices the church has used throughout history. And you probably already know this, but even Jesus himself had particular teaching tools, particular teaching devices that he was fond of using to help people better understand and not just know, but to understand and feel the truths of his word. Do you know what his most favorite teaching device was? They were called parables. Parables are just short stories that illustrate a significant truth, but these parables, these stories, these illustrations have a way of sneaking up on you. The truth that Jesus is trying to highlight and instill, it it catches people off guard. And in our text for this morning, we're going to get one of Jesus' shortest yet 
most profound parables as he tries to help a religious leader understand where the fuel for loving God is truly found. And here's a hint for you. It's not where he expected. And I want you to know as we begin to consider this text this morning, this is a huge thing for us. I want 2020 to be a year of unparalleled love for Jesus. Don't you? If you're honest though, if you're, if you're like me at all, that, that flame of love for Christ looks a lot more like a flicker more often than I want to admit. The cares of the world, the busyness of life, it can take a front seat in my mind and in my heart, but where will we find the fuel to love Jesus in such a self-forgetful way that it would seem embarrassing to love him the way we do to other people? Well, this is what Jesus is trying to help us with this morning. So if you've got your Bibles, turn to the gospel according to Luke, Luke chapter seven. If you wanna use one of the Bibles in the pew in front of you, you can find our text on page 864. We're gonna spend our time in the last verses of Luke chapter seven, verses 36 through 50. And the gospel writer Luke, he, he took meticulous notes when he met with people. He was determined to hunt down all the eyewitnesses that he could find to Jesus' ministry, that he might be able to accurately record what we have here in his gospel. And here at the end of chapter seven, we get a front row seat to one of the most uncomfortably beautiful scenes in the Bible. It's uncomfortable, it's beautiful, it's one of my favorites. And we can break it up in three main sections. There's the setting of the story that Luke is going to tell. There's going to be the, the speaking that's going to occur between the people in the scene. And then there's gonna be this beautiful sending that Jesus gives one of the characters in the story and a sending that Jesus gives us, even his church today, into a new year. So let's pick up the story in verse 36. Luke records this. That one of the Pharisees asked to eat with Jesus. And Jesus went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at table. Now, you gotta see the scene. We're gonna spend some time trying to picture this scene. You gotta read it like a human if the, the force of Jesus' parable is gonna sit on us this morning. It would have been like any other Sabbath day when a visiting teacher would come into town. He would often be allowed to teach in the synagogue and then a prominent religious leader in that place would invite this teacher back to his house for a banquet, for a luncheon, for a brunch after the Sabbath meeting. So the scene that we're about to enter is a, a Sunday brunch at a religious leader's house. A man named Simon, who was a Pharisee, which means he was really well respected. He had been schooled in the word of the Lord. He had memorized a great portion of what you and I now know as the Old Testament. He understood the historical teaching of the church about it. And he took the honor of having this traveling teacher who had spoken in the synagogue that he had heard about. Luke tells us leading up to this little story here at the end of chapter seven, that the word about Jesus, all that he was doing had spread throughout the country. <clears throat> So Simon had heard about this man. He heard him firsthand in the synagogue. He heard him teach. And then he took the honor of having him into his house for brunch. Simon was just like another Pharisee that we're familiar with in the Gospels named Nicodemus. He was curious about Jesus. He wanted to see more and hear more from Jesus. So after Jesus would teach and the meeting would adjourn, they would adjourn to Simon's house for this banquet. And this house that Simon had was probably like the houses of other people in his status and station in life in that day. It was built around an open courtyard. 
Inside that courtyard was probably a tended to garden and quite possibly, depending upon Simon's status and wealth, a, a fountain in the middle of that garden. And when people would host these kinds of brunches, these kinds of banquets and dinner, it would actually happen out in the courtyard, not inside the house. And it would happen at a low table. And all of the invited guests would recline around that table together, each leaning on their left arm with their feet behind them so that their right hand was free to reach out onto the table. This was no quiet banquet either. This brunch was a lot, a lot more like a block party. Lunches like this were open door. There were invited guests, particular people of honor, friends of Simon, who had the honor of being around the table with Simon and the guest, but other people were allowed to come as well. The door was open. So bystanders, some who were friends, some who weren't friends, anyone who was curious, those who may have even heard Jesus earlier that morning teaching, everyone was welcome to come into this courtyard to stand around the perimeter of the outside walls and overhear the conversation that would be happening between these religious leaders and this guest. So it was a, a busy affair going on around this table where the scene takes place. In verse 37, Luke says it's in this moment and in this setting that behold, and that's a word of excitement. That's a word of, of um, alertness. That's like, pay attention here. There's shock. This is a word of shock. Behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner. We're not told her name. She's identified and defined by her past. She had a reputation you can probably imagine. She was one of the women in the city who if you were out at the market with your kids, you would pull your kids close and maybe go across the other side of the street not to get too close to her. This woman of the city who was a sinner, when she had learned that he, speaking of Jesus, was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster flask of ointment. Now you need to imagine this and read this like a human this woman whose worst sins were known to her entire town came into the house and into the courtyard and into the banquet of a man with the most impeccable religious reputation in town in the company of his most trusted and his most honored friends, a group which she undoubtedly knew saw her as an absolute outcast and viewed her with contempt. But she was there because, like Simon, she too wanted to see more of Jesus. And Luke tells us that she had with her this alabaster flask of ointment. It wasn't a jar. It wasn't a flask like you might carry in your back pocket to a, a football game or you, maybe you did in the past. I don't know. It would have been like a small vial and it would have been worn around her neck on a necklace. And anything kept in these alabaster vials, these alabaster flasks, this kind of ointment, was a prized possession. It was very expensive. Only the best went in those alabaster vials. She had on her the, the most expensive thing that she had, the most costly thing she had, a, a thing scholars say would have been a tool of her trade. And standing behind Jesus at his feet, weeping, Luke says, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. You gotta see it. This, this woman made her way through the courtyard. No doubt as she made her way there and made her way past those who had gathered around the perimeter, every single eye in that place was on her, fixed on her. 
And she could get right up to Jesus' feet because the way they would recline, his feet would be behind him pointing at the people who were around the perimeter of the room. And it was as she approached his feet that the emotional dam inside of her heart broke. Luke says as she stood there, she wet his feet with her tears. This is a wailing, ugly, crying scene. She's a snotty mess. These aren't shy, little diminutive tears that trickle down a cheek. The words that Luke uses here are words used in the rest of the Bible for rain showers. She is sobbing. She is wailing. This is that emotional, ugly crying you know that you've gone through in your life and you wish no one else could remember. She's crying so hard. He says she literally is washing his feet. And we know from the detail that Luke gives us, she wasn't prepared for what was happening. This wasn't part of her plan. At some point as she realizes what's happening and her tears are literally flowing down and washing Jesus' feet, she does what would have been unthinkable even for her in that situation. She let down her hair to wipe his feet. You've got to understand in Jewish law and in Jewish tradition, in the Talmud, which are the teachings that the, that, the, that the priests, the rabbis would have given throughout the Old Testament, in the Talmud, a woman letting her hair down in public, not in the privacy of her home with her husband, but anywhere else in public, that was on par with going out into the streets without clothes on. In the Talmud, in Jewish tradition, The morning a woman would get married, she would tie her hair up for the ceremony. She would not let her hair down again unless she was in the privacy of her home with her husband. This woman, who everybody already had an opinion of, here in the midst of this courtyard with these people, she lets her hair down. And she begins to wipe the feet of Jesus. And her hair, no doubt, something she probably kept in tremendous shape given her trade gets all matted up with her tears and the dirt and the mud that would have been on Jesus' feet and she keeps repeatedly kissing his feet and as she does she breaks the neck of that alabaster vial and begins to anoint Jesus' feet with the ointment the scent in the courtyard would have begun to fill the air with that ointment all the conversations that were happening, all the busyness, all the fussing, it would have stopped. The only sounds that you could hear in that courtyard at that moment were the crying wails of this woman. And if they hadn't been already, every single eye was fixed on her. She was at this point what one writer said, she was a self-forgetful, sobbing mess. At this moment, this woman doesn't care at all what any person in that courtyard thinks about her, knows about her, what she once was, what she's identified by. All she cares about is Jesus. And that's the scene. It's an awkward scene. It's an uncomfortable scene. I tried to imagine going out to lunch with the staff at some point this week, enjoying our time together, And unbeknownst to us, a a woman of the city walks in. All of a sudden, not paying any attention, she begins to take Chris's shoes off. (laughs) 
begins wailing and crying, wetting his feet with her tears and wiping them with her hair, kissing his feet repeatedly while we're sitting out in lunch. That's awkward. <laughs> It'd be really uncomfortable. And that's what's happening right here. And at this point in the story, no words have been spoken at all. And then Luke is going to let us in on something. We're going to get some perspectives on the scene, what's happening. The first perspective he's going to give us is Simon's, and then we're going to take a moment, and we're going to jump down, and we're going to look at Jesus' perspective on the situation. But first he gives us Simon's in verse 39. Now, when the Pharisee who had invited Jesus saw this, he said to himself, so he still hasn't spoken out loud. He's thinking something in his own heart. If this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she's a sinner. So in his heart, Simon has already judged this woman for her sin, and now he's already judging Jesus for not judging her. Obviously, if Jesus was truly the prophet, people say he is. The word on the street is out. He's healed the sick. He's raised the dead. He speaks with an authority like no one else. Is this the prophet that God has promised? If he really was the prophet, he would have known who was touching him. And he uses the word there for a very sensual kind of touch. He saw what was happening in one particular way because of who and how he saw this woman. If he really was the prophet, he pushed this woman away. Simon is mad that his party's been crashed by this woman and that Jesus is receiving her, not rejecting her. To Simon, this woman is simply defined by her sinfulness. That's who she is. And Jesus He's a fraud. That's who he is. But Simon, at least in his own eyes, Simon is neither a fraud nor a sinner. To himself, he's the most respectable, religious, and above reproach one sitting around the table. It's funny, though, before we look at Jesus' perspective on what's happening here, at this point, we, we still don't know what Jesus is thinking about this woman. In the awkwardness and uncomfortable reality of what's happening here, Jesus is still silent. He's allowing her to love him. He receives her. Can you imagine how his disciples must have been feeling? They were there. They're watching this happen. How uncomfortable were they? I mean, how instinctive would it have been for them to want Jesus to do to her exactly what Simon wanted? Given what was known about this woman, it would have been defiling for a religious leader like Simon or Jesus to allow this woman to be in their presence and to touch them. Think of how anxious his disciples even were. But Jesus is still silent. I think it's similar to what we saw a few weeks ago when Ray was preaching about how Jesus handled Mary and Martha when Lazarus died. Remember Jesus said it was, for your sake, I'm glad I wasn't there. Jesus was creating space for them to see what they needed to see in order to believe. And in this moment, in this scene, I think Jesus is creating this uncomfortable space with this silence, with this woman, so that those who are there can see what they need to see, that they might believe and understand what it is he wants them to understand. In this uncomfortable space, Jesus is honoring her dignity and creating space for everyone there to see what they need to see. Maybe transformation really is possible. Maybe the grace of God is more powerful than they even imagined. Maybe God's grace sets people free from the boxes we like to put them in. 
maybe it's powerful enough to set us free from the boxes and labels we like to put on ourselves. What was Jesus' perspective of the situation? Skip down for a second to verse 44. I know it ruins a good story, but skip down. I promise we'll come back. Turning toward the woman. Now you can imagine Jesus now looking at her, right? He says to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house and you gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she's not ceased to kiss my feet. You didn't anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. You see, it would have been customary in a situation like this for someone like Simon who had brought an honored guest into his home for a banquet like this to to at first put his hands on his guest's shoulders and to kiss him on the cheek when he came in as a sign of honor. It would have been customary to have water ready there for his guest, either to wash his own feet off or to have someone do it for him. They're wearing these flimsy little leather sandals walking on unpaved dirt roads. Their feet would get so caked up with dirt and dust and sweat and mud that before a banquet like this, they would have them cleaned off. And it would have been customary as a sign of honor and respect for a guest like this to put a little bit of olive oil, oil on their head to anoint them as a sign of honor coming into the banquet. Simon didn't do any of it for Jesus. And guess what? Everybody there knew. It was obvious to everyone there that Simon did not treat his honored guest with honor. He had already judged Jesus in his own heart. He didn't offer up for Jesus what was customary even in that moment. But this woman, this woman who was lower than the lowest class that he could imagine in his heart, in Simon's heart, this woman did more for Jesus than would have been customary even for Simon. The dishonor that Simon had already shown Jesus was obvious to everybody. I mean, imagine having, imagine someone in your mind, parents, kids, adults, imagine the person that you would most want to have over for lunch. You'd most want to have over for a play date. And they said yes. And they come over to your house and you ignore them the entire time. You don't say hi when they walk in. You don't take their coat for them. That is on par with what Simon was doing here with Jesus. But this woman, who in Simon's eyes was so low, she was showing more honor to Jesus than him. She washed his feet not with water, but with her own tears, dried them with her own hair. She didn't just offer a kiss of honor on the cheek. She could not stop kissing his feet. She took that which was most prized, most expensive, the possession around her neck in that alabaster jar, cracked it open and began to anoint his feet with the ointment. I wondered as I read it this week, we know she wasn't prepared for the emotional onslaught that happened because she had to use her hair to dry his feet. She didn't have a towel with her. She wasn't preparing to do that. But I wonder if as she came to see more of Jesus, as she was there and she saw the way that Simon had disrespected him, She saw he hadn't washed his feet. She saw that he hadn't been given the proper respect of honor of the kiss and of the oil. I wonder if as she approached Jesus and the emotions just broke, if she could only do for him what she knew was only right. And that's why she did it. Simon received Jesus into his home to size him up, to judge him, to see if this man Jesus meets his expectations. 
He remained detached and cool, separated from him. But this woman, on the other hand, she, she let nothing come between her and Jesus. She didn't let her shame come between them, her class, her gender, her embarrassment, or the judgment of the people around her. She let nothing get between her and Jesus and showing Jesus the love that she felt towards him. Friends, this is what I want for us in 2020. I mean, what moves us from cool and detached to self-forgetful messes of joy? What we see in this woman is what honors Jesus. What we see in this scene is the one that Jesus honors. Why did she do it? How do we get there? Friends, anytime a Bible writer gives us a story like this and he puts in a picture, the comparison between two people and the way they see and respond to Jesus, it's always an invitation for you and I to consider in our own hearts and in our own lives who in the story we most identify with. Why did this woman do what she did? What got her to the place where she could be such a self-forgetful mess of joy and love in front of Jesus? Well, that's where the parable comes in. Go back to verse 40. Simon is still silently judging Jesus and this woman in his heart. And verse 40 says, Jesus answering Simon. Did you catch that? Simon hadn't spoken yet. He's thinking things in his own mind and in his own heart. And Jesus answers him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, say it, teacher. Sidebar, just teacher. He came in wanting to size Jesus up. Is this really the prophet that God had sent that people said he is? No, he's not. Go ahead and tell me what you want to tell me, teacher. Well, a certain money lender had two debtors. One owed, one owed 500 denarii, and you just call that a year's wages. And the other 50, and just call that a month's wages. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now which of them will love him more? Verse 43, Simon answered, the one I suppose for whom he canceled the larger debt. And Jesus said to him, you have judged rightly. You, you've judged rightly, Simon. All right, you're on the right track. Now look, verse 44, do you see this woman? Look at her, Simon. She's gone above and beyond what would have been simply customary for you. Do you see her? What do you see when you look at her? Look at her. Simon saw a party-crashing, home-wrecking, lowbrow sinner. Jesus saw a broken woman, a woman broken by her sin who has tasted his forgiveness. Simon, you see a problem. What I see is repentance. And the parable that Jesus tells and the point he's trying to make are about to get really sharp. Jesus is trying to help Simon take the log of self-righteousness out of his own eye. And so he turns to Simon, verse 47. Here's the point. Therefore, I tell you, Simon, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. Now, this is not the four of causality. This isn't the four of, of foundation and cause. This isn't her sins are forgiven because you see her doing all these acts of love for me. These acts of love for me are not why she's forgiven. 
these acts of love for me are the fruit of the forgiveness that she has tasted in her heart. And he looks back at Simon. And I like to imagine the way he looked at Simon's eyes. And he said, but he who is forgiven little loves little. And you can imagine the silence that might have hung in the air. It's a tremendous moment. Simon had the reputation of a godly man. He had the reputation and the position that every man around him admired. She had the reputation of one who destroyed people's homes. Yet in front of all these people, Jesus declared that it was this woman who loved God much. While it was the religious leader. The one who around the table knew the most about God. It was he who loved God little. Why? Why? Because this woman, unlike Simon, believed that she needed the forgiveness that Jesus had offered. And Simon didn't believe he needed it. As one writer says, self-righteousness is a lot like bad breath. Everyone notices it but you. He who is forgiven little, loves little. Friends, the doorway into self-forgetful, Jesus-loving 2020 is simply this. You and I will love, will enjoy God to the degree that you and I recognize the magnitude of our sin and the immensity of God's grace to forgive them. For sinners like you and me, the fuel of our love for God is the realization that captured the former slave trader turned pastor's heart, John Newton, who said, although my memory is fading, I remember two things very clearly. I am a great sinner, and Jesus is a great savior. This is what this woman was saying without having to say a word. The point that Jesus is trying to make here at this banquet in this moment is not that she just had more sin than Simon had that she had big sin and Simon had little sin. You realize when you're in debt and you can't pay it back, it doesn't matter how much you owe. You realize that, right? Someone $500,000 in debt and someone $50,000 in debt. If you can't pay it back, you're both in debt. It doesn't matter the amount. The point that Jesus is trying to make is that true love for him, true worship, it, it, it comes. It's fueled by a deep awareness of our own sin and of God's amazing grace towards us. It's Matthew Henry, the great early American pastor who said there's no such thing as a small sin because there's no such thing as a small God to sin against. What Jesus is trying to help Simon and everyone else around the room, including his own disciples, come to understand is that a small view of our sin always leads to a small view of our Savior. Simon loved little because he sensed little need for the forgiveness of God. Friends, I don't want a small view of Jesus. It's in that moment as Jesus made his point clear and it began to come home. And in verse 48, he, he turns and he looks at this woman. Let's imagine what that looked like. You know, they locked eyes and he probably paused for a minute. He looks at her and he says, your sins are forgiven. Right there, in front of all these people, 
all these respected religious leaders, all these men, all these people who had kept themselves and their families so far away from her, all the shame, all the contempt, all the judgment right there around that table, Jesus looks at her and he says, your sins are forgiven. He had already said that she was had experienced salvation. Why did he say it here? Well, this is just the sweet kindness of Jesus. This is just Jesus giving this woman back the dignity that she was born with and assuring her in the presence of all these religious leaders that she had been forgiven by God. The assurance of her pardon and her forgiveness is so sweet in this moment. But it was so troubling to those around the table. Verse 49, those who were at the table with Simon and with Jesus began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? Who does he think he is? And then Jesus gives this woman the sweetest of sendings. Look at verse 50. Jesus, not even addressing those who were grumbling, not even addressing those around the table, he continues to look at this woman. And he says, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. This woman had heard the same message of the gospel, the same authoritative teaching of Jesus, maybe at the same meeting that morning with Simon. Maybe she was in the synagogue that morning in the court of the women listening to this teacher, weighed down by the shame of her own life, the guilt of her own sin, the judgment of everyone around her. Maybe it was there that morning that she heard Jesus teaching just like Simon did. But we know at some point, if it wasn't that morning, it was before that as Jesus was teaching around the town, she had heard him. She had heard the message of forgiveness. Maybe she heard Jesus teach like Tim talked about last week on the north side. Jesus saying, come. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden. My yoke is easy. My burden is light. She had heard Jesus. And she had responded. And she was saved. Just like we all are by grace through faith. As Paul said, not, not of our own doing, simply from a gift of God, not a result of our own work or our own efforts that any of us may boast. It's not because of the lavish acts of love and honor that she showed Jesus that she was saved. That was simply the love pouring out of a heart of a woman who had recognized the magnitude of her own sin and the magnitude of God's grace towards her. Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Your sins have been forgiven. Your faith has saved you. Your future will be one of peace. Friends, as you come face to face with Jesus in the Gospels, this is something Jesus is fond of saying to people after he heals them. See, this is a healing miracle of a different kind. It's, it's one that you and I can experience as well. Your faith has saved you. Your sins have been forgiven. Your future is one of peace. What a great sending into a new year from Jesus to us. See, Jesus hasn't changed. 
The one who loved this woman and forgave her still loves and forgives today all who will come to him by faith. See, it's fascinating. She did not know at this point how far Jesus would go to secure her forgiveness of sin. But we know. We know just how far Jesus will go to secure our forgiveness. We know the story. We know the cross. We know that Jesus went just that far for us. We know his mercy. We know his grace. We know of his power. And this morning as we prepare to respond to God's word together and hear this sending of Jesus into a new year, why don't the musicians and and those who are going to distribute communion come on up this morning. Friends, I want this next year, 2020, to be a year of unbridled love for Jesus. He deserves it. Our city needs to see it. And the fuel for this unbridled, self-forgetful love for Jesus is a deepening gratitude for his grace, a greater enjoyment of his grace. As we get ready to respond together this morning to God's word, let me just ask you something. Is, is your love for Jesus growing? If it's not, maybe you find yourself in Simon's situation. Maybe you've convinced yourself that you can deal with your sin problem. Or maybe you've even convinced yourself and begun to believe that you don't have a sin problem at all. Friends, let me tell you, self-righteousness is a surefire way to snuff out the fire of love for Jesus. But here's the good news. Jesus is in the business of removing the log of self-righteousness out of people's eyes. You know, Luke is the one who went around and he tried to find eyewitnesses to the stories of Jesus' ministry to authenticate the gospel he was writing. Who else but Simon do you think could tell Luke the story of what happened here? Who else but Simon would know what was going on in his own heart while Jesus was receiving this woman's love? Could it be at some point, days down the road, months down the road, who knows? This Simon finally heard the message of grace that snuck up on him that day. This Simon finally tasted the forgiveness that he thought he could work his own way out of. Jesus has always been in the business of removing the logs of self-righteousness from the eyes of those who would receive him. Friends, will you set yourself to see Jesus this year? Will your purpose yourself this year to see him for who he is? If you will, he'll set you free to see the reality of your sin and the magnitude of his grace. This woman sins from Jesus, not his condemnation, but his forgiveness. And it was this forgiveness that freed her to pour out her love for him. Friends, this is the way that Jesus receives all sinners who come to him by faith. I couldn't help but think of the song as I read the story, though her sins were scarlet. This day at this banquet, regardless of what people thought around her, she was pure as snow. And she felt the freedom and the joy of forgiveness. And she couldn't keep it in. And she loved him. Friends, this is the unbridled, self-forgetful love for Jesus I want for us this year. He's worth it. 
friends, do you know what it is to be clean? To have your sin forgiven? To have your debt canceled? There is one here today, this morning, right now, in our midst, who is ready to wipe the slate clean because he has paid in full your debt with his blood at the cross. Like this woman, your sin is atoned for. Your forgiveness secured. Your debt canceled. And you get it by simply trusting in Christ. He told her, your faith has saved you. This morning, will you trust in Jesus and receive the mercy and grace he offers? By faith, J.C. Ryle said, the woman received our Lord's invitation to come to me and receive his rest. By faith, she embraced that invitation and in embracing it, she threw off her sins under which she had so long been laboring and heavy laden. And by faith, she boldly came to the Pharisee's house and confessed by her behavior that she had found rest in Jesus. Her faith worked through love and bore such precious and lasting fruit. This morning, we are going to invite those of you who have tasted of the love and mercy of Christ by faith to come forward and receive the elements of communion, remembering his life, his death, and his resurrection by faith, proclaiming with joy that you know your sins are forgiven, that you are secured in his hand. And this morning, for those who are here this morning who would not say that you are a follower of Jesus, God would call you to trust in his son by faith to know what it is to have your sins forgiven, your, your pardon secure, that you might experience the same kind of joy and gratitude we read about in this woman this morning, that 2020 might be a year of unbridled love for Jesus. Let me pray, and then as the musicians play, we're gonna invite you to come forward this morning and receive communion together as a family. Father, we thank you that your grace doesn't come as we would expect. Your grace isn't boxed in and limited to our expectations, but your grace is wild. Your grace is free. And your grace is transforming. Lord, we want this next year as you send us out from this place to be a year of unbridled, self-forgetful love for you. A love that would cause the people around us to wonder what in the world is going on. What is so worth such affection? What is worth such faith? What is worth such hope? God, we ask this morning that you would help us to see the logs of self-righteousness in our own eye, the magnitude of our need for you, only to see it in the shadow of the magnitude of your grace for us in the cross. We ask this morning that you would do that in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to a message by Robert Green, given at Redemption Hill Church in Richmond, Virginia. For more information on the church and to hear other messages, please visit us online at www.redemptionhill.com.